All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. We've got a very special guest on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Marvin Berman. Uh, Dr. Berman earned his master's and PhD in psychoeducational processes from Temple University, where he studied group and organizational behavior. Um, he later obtained a certification in bioenergetic analysis at the Philadelphia Institute for Bio, uh, Bioenergetic Analysis in 1983. Um, he's also participated in post-grad training workshops and seminars in system-centered therapy and the Feldenkrais method. Uh, he was certified in EEG biofeedback in 2003. Uh, Marvin currently uh, has a leadership role in expanding the application of EEG biofeedback and related technologies into the treatment of neurodegenerative and neuropsychiatric disorders. All right, Marvin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm curious, you know, as far as this is an interesting kind of niche that you found. How did you originally get interested in, in this kind of line of work? Well, my original training was in psychology and the psychological studies of group and organizational behavior. Um, but I was always interested in being a, a, a practicing psychotherapist. And so I did a, a concurrent training program in uh, bioenergetic analysis while I was in graduate school. And the thing I liked about bioenergetics was that it was a psychodynamically oriented approach to psychotherapy, but it had a very direct connection to understanding how psychological symptoms could be observed and treated as they showed up as chronic patterns of muscular tension in the body. And this was based on the work of a guy named Wilhelm Reich, who was one of the early pioneers in psychoanalysis in Germany and in Austria. And he was the one who did experiments showing that when people were manifesting psychological symptoms like hysteria, when he measured the voltage going across parts of their body, it was diminished. And then when he did psychotherapy with these people and they had a, an ab reaction or they got in touch with what the early trauma was that they were defending against, once they started to become aware of the trauma, and express their feelings about it, he measured those same muscle areas and noticed that the voltage had increased significantly. So this led to a, an appreciation of how mind and body really were related and that therapy for psychological or psychiatric problems had to also include treatment on a body level in order to achieve a full resolution. So bioenergetics was the version of therapy that was developed by Reich in Europe. It was then popularized and developed in the US by uh, Dr. Alexander Lowen and John Paracas. Before we go any further, um, can you just briefly kind of 
uh, define what bioenergetics are uh, or, or what bio oh, bioenergetic bio, bioenergetic is a form of psychoanalytic psychotherapy so in the same way that people would sit and talk about their problems uh, whatever emotional problems they're having the same thing would happen but that we would also connect those experiences that they're having that they would consider psychological or mental, we would also see how they were manifesting in their body as patterns of chronic restriction, both in muscle function and in respiration and breathing. Gotcha. And then we would treat, we would, the treatment process would involve working with people on a body level to free up the patterns of chronic tension which would then result in them connecting with the emotional issues that they had been struggling with and being able to resolve them by gaining a greater level of insight as well as also being able to express the emotions that were not able to be expressed at the time that the problem happened. So I'm curious then, were you seeing, uh, you know, with these bioenergetics, was there were there a lot of patients coming who had you know been previously like you know seen by a psychiatrist and they just oh, had all yeah, this sure. sort of psychiatric symptoms and it just wasn't getting fixed? Um, well, I mean, in a sense, psychiatric treatment is primarily focused on symptom reduction. It's not really focused on resolving the root causes of whatever it was that was creating the problem for the person. So bioenergetics was really trying to address the root causes and what, and what were the patterns of behavior that were making it such that people's symptoms were persisting, if not getting worse. So the medication and the other kinds of talk therapy uh, hadn't really gotten to the more fundamental issues that the person was having, particularly in terms of how those issues were manifest as patterns of chronic muscular tension. So bioenergetics became a way for people who never got fully resolved from standard talk therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, things like that, that they never really got fully resolved about those those issues and so they came looking for something else that was more body oriented people who were on medication were also basically experiencing the same thing and seeing that the medication was in some ways blunting their experience making it possible for them to get through a day but that they were paying the price of very severe side effects and loss of other functions, including just being able to enjoy life. And if you've ever been on psychiatric medication, um, you know what I mean. So tell me, okay, so with the the bioenergetic analysis, are you were you are you talking about looking at uh, people's EEGs or what other instruments? Oh, well, that yeah, that. So what happened was bioenergetics focused, like I said, on muscular tension. 
So the way in which people would be uh, working would be in terms of stretching or recognizing using different kinds of movement techniques, recognizing where they were stuck in terms of their movement and unable to be able to let go physically. And then when they did let go physically, they were then in touch with the feelings that they had been keeping out of awareness. Well, that was all well and good, except that some of the people who I started working with after a while would say things like, you know, I feel much better and things are going really well in my life, but you know, sometimes things don't click and they would kind of take their index fingers and poke themselves in the, in the temples. And I said, well, wait a minute, what, what's that, what is that movement, that gesture, what is that in English? And they, they said, well, you know, sometimes I have to read things three times because I can't remember what I read. And sometimes the, the letters move around on the page and it's hard to focus. And I offhandedly said, what, you got hit in the head? And I said it in a, you know, kind of kidding offhanded, somewhat snarky way. And the guy came back to me and said, well, you mean like a car accident? No, I never had a car accident. And then I sat back and went, wait a minute, that's not what I asked you. So did you ever get hit in the head regardless of how? And the guy said, oh, you know, I fell down the basement steps when I was three and Johnny hit me with a baseball bat when I was 10. And I hit a brick wall when I was on my bicycle and I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not, you're not neurotic. You've got real brain injury. This is, this is not, this is not psychological. This is an actual physical injury. And that's when we started looking at how do we measure and understand the impact of actual brain injury or brain trauma on brain function and on emotional and psychological functioning. So that's where the EEG came in because I couldn't really use the techniques and the approach that I had been trained to use because it no longer really applied to these people who had frank, you know, trauma to their brain, to their head. So that required a different way of understanding what was going on with these people. And that led me to studying in neuropsychology and neurophysiology and electrophysiology to be able to address that question in a, in a, in a real clinically useful way. Right. And what were, what were some of the most interesting observations or, or things that you well, found with patients when you started employing the, the EEGs and the, oh, the neurofeedback? Well, I mean, I had to go back and look at my whole caseload. And at the time when I did that, 70% of the people in my caseload had a real head injury in their history, which we had never fully discussed uh, as part of the history taking. It was just, you know, did you ever go to the hospital? No. Did you ever have a car accident? No. You know, it was like that. Did you ever get knocked unconscious? No. But these people had histories of real head trauma. So 
when we started to use the EEG as a way to measure abnormalities in brain electrical functioning, it became clear that the people with depressive disorders had more recognizable and consistent patterns of abnormal activity that involved the communication between the left and the right hemispheres in the front of their brain, whereas people with anxiety disorders of, of various kinds, they were producing more of what we would call alpha brain waves, and they were doing producing that more globally all over their head. Um, and with depression, you're saying, are, are you referring to kind of that alpha asymmetry yes. in the frontal lobes? Yeah. Yes. So that was one of the typical things that we started to recognize was alpha asymmetry and also suppression of activity overall, particularly in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that would have been, if functioning normally, would be controlling and monitoring and modulating the overactivity that was taking place in the right prefrontal cortex. And so because there was this overactivity in the more primitive part of the brain and the less primitive, more analytical, more uh, functional reality-oriented part of the brain was not being used, could not be used to actually control and modulate that activity, and people were then significantly out of balance. Right, right. Okay, so tell me then how did you sort of transition, um, or maybe you already were seeing kind of the, the leadership and, and peak performance people, um, I'm curious how how you got into that sort of consulting in in that regard. Um, some of the people that we were working with were connected with uh, the NFL, and so we got to talking with them about how they were using biofeedback of various types to help their players improve their overall physical performance and then started to look at how <clears throat> they and people on the Olympic Committee were using brainwave biofeedback as well as peripheral biofeedback techniques for enhancing performance. So we started working with people who were interested in improving their cognitive functioning as well as their physical functioning once they had resolved whatever the head trauma or other kinds of difficulties that they would come into treatment for. So we started out mostly with people who had some kind of problem, some abnormality, but who then once they resolved it, wanted to continue to op optimize their performance. So that was, that was certainly one group. Um, we've recently been working with uh, professional weightlifters and uh, elite level gymnastics groups in Canada, uh, looking at different ways to influence and support their performance using non-invasive kind of techniques, including neurofeedback. And 
one thing I want to just go back quickly to the the NFL that uh, made me curious when you when you said that. Um, what year was this, and like how long has the NFL been using biofeedback or neurofeedback? Or oh, the NFL's been using biofeedback for I would say about twenty years. The Olympic Committee has also been using biofeedback and neurofeedback for a good twenty years. Um, a lot of a lot of organizations are using it now, obviously, but the U.S. Olympic Committee has been using neurofeedback for quite a long time because I think they recognized pretty early on that once people reach that level of excellence and, and elite performance, the real way that's differentiating one performance from another has to do with mental um, capacity, mental function, flexibility, and the ability to really focus your attention and not be distracted and stay really focused on exactly what it is you're trying to produce as a result. And those are the people who tend to be the ones who perform the best. Sure. And with the, the NFL and the Olympic committee or, or with the Olympics, I'm curious, what, do they use kind of like, uh, is it all on an individual sort of basis or do you know, oh, yeah. the, are there specific protocols that no, they, they're, no um, my colleague, Dr. Michael Mark, uh, he developed a, 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 a technology that involved measuring both peripheral and central nervous system activity. Um, and he did that for the um, Italian soccer team that won the World Cup. And the year that they won the World Cup, they had these guys in the pods and they measured their individual responses while they were watching specially edited video of them in the game, in previous games where they were making mistakes. And they were watching themselves make one mistake after another in this edited video. And what they were training themselves to do using the biofeedback was to minimize their negative reaction to recognizing the mistake in their performance. And they would do that on a regular basis. And what they noticed was that as a result of that training, when they were in the World Cup Finals, and they were in similar situations to the ones where they had made errors, they felt no discomfort, they were completely not distracted, and were able to stay fully focused on what was needed at the time, and they didn't make the errors. And that's what they reported as being one of the significant contributors to them winning the World Cup that year. That's fascinating. So I'm curious. I mean, it, it sort of makes sense to me as far as if, if, you know, a certain team figures out they can, you know, sort of have a competitive edge use, right. you know, utilizing these technologies that we wouldn't hear about them doing it. But I don't know, we hear so much about, you know, with, with doping, you know, athletic doping. Um, it's interesting that, I mean, 
people who've uh, been listening to the podcast for a while have likely, you know, heard me talk uh, quite a bit about biofeedback, neurofeedback, but just the general population seems to be pretty, still pretty, uh, pretty uninformed about it. And it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah. And, um, I think that it's, it speaks to the level of kind of conditioning and habituation that we've all been exposed to over our lives for generations, really, that the solution to a physical problem requires taking a pill. It means taking something from the outside and putting it into you in order to correct whatever is, quote, wrong with you. And so, um, if you'll indulge me, uh, just finish the next three things. You go to the doctor when you're sick. And when you get there, you tell the doctor what's wrong. And then you expect the doctor's going to uh, treat you. Right. So I've been doing that with that little thing that I did with you now for about 35 years. And regardless of who it is and what their background is and where they come from or how much money their parents made or how much education they had or what religion they are, it didn't matter. They always answer those things the same way. So that's the level of social conditioning that we've all been subjected to by the medical and pharmacological establishment that we live in and the mindset of how we need to think and respond as to what it means to be healthy. And that when we're not healthy, whatever that means, we then have to consult with some person who then we put all of our dependency on and, and expect that they are going to do something to fix us. And that mindset is what I think we're now working to undo in the culture uh, in various levels. And I think that people in the sports world and in the performance enhancement world are people who have certainly developed a much higher sense of individual responsibility and accountability for themselves. And therefore, they look for ways for improving their performance that don't involve taking something in from the outside or engaging with somebody else, except maybe as a coach, that will support them in making the kind of changes that they need to make to, to enhance their own well-being, health, performance, what have you. And that's just not something that's really made it down into the general society, because there's a lot of conditioning that goes against doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, people for the most part uh, tend to want a quick fix and with neurofeedback, you could make, you know, way more improvement or way, you know, more long lasting improvement than you could get from using a, a medication or something. But I think people, you know, tend to not give things enough time to actually work. Well, there's the, there's the not enough time to give, yeah, not giving enough time to make things work if I kind of put my psychology hat back on and think about it as a therapist, when people are in pain, 
they psychologically uh, regress. And when people regress, they start co using coping strategies and methods that are more what we would expect to see in young children or even babies. And so when somebody's in pain and they're in a more regressed state, what they're gonna do is what they learned to do and what they were conditioned to do when they were young, which is to turn to the authority figure, right? Or mommy or daddy and expect that they are going to make the boo-boo go away. So with that mindset, people are going to then turn their dependency, they're gonna focus their dependency on some authority figure, and they're then going to have very little in terms of frustration tolerance or impulse control because they're coming from a very regressed place and it's kind of like, okay, fix me, fix me now. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of emotional stance that people are adopting when they're in one kind of pain or another. Right. But it makes sense, though, that athletes would kind of gravitate towards, towards you know, more of this, this approach because, you know, they're willing, as you were kind of mentioning earlier, they're willing to do anything, you know, to get a slight little edge. So... You know. Right, and they know that it's them, that they're the ones who yes. are going to have to take whatever the advice is in order to gain the edge. They are going to have to do something themselves. Well said, absolutely. And, and that's a completely different stance to adopt. Right. What's your, I'm curious, what's your take on like some of the commercial, like I've seen some of the uh, sort of devices that have come out um, involving like neurostimulation um, mm -hmm. for athletes. There's a specific one I'm thinking of. I think that uh, it's direct current over the motor cortex. What's your, do you think? Uh, people are using, people are using a variety of techniques and technologies now that really have been around for a very long time. And I think that what we're going to see is that in fact, electrical stimulation can produce significant changes in brain function and in physiology. I mean, people are using uh, vagal nerve stimulation now and getting significant improvements in cognitive functioning. Um, we've been using light therapy, you know, infrared light therapy, and pulsing it at different frequencies and, and showing how those kind of interventions can significantly enhance cognitive performance, emotional regulation, uh, the resolution of different kinds of trauma, uh, as well as with, with dementia patients and people with neurodegenerative disorders, we're seeing that we can actually stop the progression of dementia and Parkinson's, and in some cases even reverse it. So, I mean, people are seeing that these kind of interventions can have very dramatic and, and lasting effects. However, the the devices that are coming out on the market are, I mean, they're not quite toys, but they lack any kind of significant control. So they become kind of a, you know, a vanilla chocolate or strawberry type of technology. And, you know, you can get some results for a good number of people using a one size fits all approach. 
but when you start thinking in terms of clinical treatment and clinical service delivery and people coming with more significant problems, then you're not going to want a one size fits all. You're going to want to really figure out what exactly does that person need and what's the right kind of treatment in what combination at what's at what intensity in order to produce the optimal result. Sure. And as the, the technology has developed, both with, you know, EEG, QEEG, um, along with, you know, different neurostimulation approaches, what, uh, you know, what do you, what do you see as kind of the, the, um, the pinnacle of where are we going to, where are we, where can we end up? Well, I guess first where we're at now, as far as, you know, oh, okay. there's lots of debate as far as, you know, Z-score neurofeedback first, yeah. you, know, or, you know, so uh, looking at kind of the raw data, I'm curious just what what your take is on on that. Um, I think that the the finer, the more finely we can measure changes in brain electrical activity, and the more finely we can discriminate uh, and and develop metrics that can describe the relationship between certain kinds of physical and emotional states and how they show up in terms of patterns of electrical activity, for, for instance, we can then drive interventions, non-invasive interventions like cranial electrical stimulation, TDCS, uh, infrared light, uh, transcranial ultrasound. I mean, there are a number of different types of interventions, but what you always want to be doing and where we're, where we're heading is being able to use very fine discriminative metrics like EEG or QEEG and something like heart rate variability. So if you could then take heart rate variability, for instance, with quantitative EEG, Z-scores, and use those as a two-dimensional guidance system for then determining what kind of intervention is needed at what part of the brain, for how long, at what intensity, you know, that's that's the direction we need to be heading in and that's the work that we're doing at the quiet mind foundation is developing that kind of uh an analytic metric and then also an interventional algorithm that goes that that matches with the in the assessment algorithm right and, and that's actually a nice segue i was just going to ask you about um the quiet mind foundation tell me a little about what you guys are doing um, the foundation was started back in 2000 because I didn't see enough literature on neurofeedback and different approaches to non-invasive treatment of psychological and neuropsychiatric disorders in the peer-reviewed literature, and then realized that there were very few researchers in academic settings who were actually conducting the kind of studies that would then end up in peer-reviewed journals. So we set up the foundation as a vehicle for people, clinicians, who were interested in 
developing ways of doing clinical research using their technology and being able to get those studies to a level where they would be acceptable to editors of peer-reviewed journals. So the foundation started out doing applied clinical research, both with our own patients, and then we started working with other people and developed a ways for them to construct their own studies. And the foundation, having its own federal-wide assured institutional review board, means that we can independently review clinical trials that are involved involving other human subjects, and we can then independently evaluate them for their scientific merit, their ethical treatment of subjects, and their safety. And once you have that level of, of independent assessment, then you can conduct trials and submit those results to a peer-reviewed journal, and the journal will then consider it for publication. So that's what we've been working on over the last, wow, since 2000. <laughs> it's been a while, 20 years. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And we've published our own research, and we've helped other people publish their research. And uh, now we're working to help groups that are trying to affect changes in legislation at the state and federal level so that we can get Medicaid reimbursement for a specific intervention code, a CPT code, that involves the integration of psychotherapy and biofeedback. And once Medicaid will approve that kind of code for reimbursement, then we'll be making a significant change in the game. Uh, we've also been supporting the work of a group uh, at Palo Alto Health Services who developed a technology called the Free Spira, which is a biofeedback-based respiration training program that helps people treat panic disorder and PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder. And it's the first biofeedback-based treatment that's now been approved by Highmark Blue Cross and Allegheny Blue Cross and is now being considered for use in the VA. Interesting. I, I uh, haven't heard of that device before. So what is that? FreeSpear is a really interesting tool. It's a tablet computer that has a Bluetooth connection to what's called the capnometer. And the capnometer is a very sophisticated device for measuring the ratio of oxygen to CO2 in your, in your, in your breath. So you put a cannula under your nose and then the cannula measures the in and out flow of oxygen and CO2 and continuously monitors the ratio of oxygen to CO2 in order to help people then gain a, a more direct understanding of what they need to do with their breathing process in order to optimize the ratio of oxygen to CO2. Because what happens with everyone with really any kind of physical or mental disorder is that the first place that that shows up is in respiration. So there's always a change in respiration when there's any kind of abnormal event taking place in the body. So if you measure and you know what normal 
O2CO2 is, which is 40 millimeters, then you can start to monitor somebody's rate of breathing, breaths per minute, and see how that relates to their O2CO2 ratio. So if somebody trains getting, getting this biofeedback twice a day for, say, 15, 17 minutes a day, twice a day, over a month's time, you can develop a real understanding, a granular understanding of what your own breathing process needs to be in order for you to slow your breathing rate down to as close to six breaths a minute as you can get while still maintaining as close to 40 millimeters of O2-CO2 as you can do. And that will be the optimal goal for what the free spirit training is doing and what we want to see people doing in order to help them mitigate the symptoms that they're having, especially when it comes to anxiety and panic. Right. So that that's super fascinating if, if people can learn to modulate their, oh, their yeah. biological it, stress response yeah, and, and then psychologically yeah. be less right and out. in a month and in a month's time most most everybody can do it and what we see is that after a month of training and this has been done i mean there have been studies done at stanford harvard uh a, a number of different places the mayo clinic where they've shown that people who have done this kind of training at the end of a year, when they go back and evaluate them again, well over 85% of the people are not experiencing panic symptoms, or if they are, they're significantly reduced. Even though they only did the training for one month, 11 months later, they're still measuring significant improvement. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. It really is. And that's why, that's why Allegheny and, and Highmark Blue Cross you know, when they looked at the, compared the numbers of treatment as usual in psychiatric clinics, and then they compared it against people taking these devices and doing it themselves for a month, people were saving between, the, the, the company was saving between two and $3,000 per patient. Wow. So it was, it was a very brief conversation with them about, sure. hey, do you think you want to pay for this? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. What yeah, about saving a ton of money? Right, right. What about um, I found on your website a little about the the intranasal the the photobiomodulation uh, research you guys have been doing. Yeah, we're is that with we're Violite? really keen. We're really keen on the Violite as a um, as a tool that people can use right away uh, to improve uh, blood flow. ATP production, and now given what's going on with COVID-19, that you can enhance blood flow to the brain and also improve the, the level of surfactant in your lungs and in your nasal passages so you can improve your resistance to infection from COVID-19. So wow. we're working on doing research along those lines. Yeah. With the photo, so with the photobiomodulation, and so basically with with shooting this, is it Light. the intra so the intranasal, correct? Mm -hmm. Intranasal. Now, I mean, if people can use the alpha, the neuro alpha, or the gamma device, they'll get more powerful light in their nose because the milliwatts of the 
neuro, alpha, and gamma intranasal unit is significantly more powerful than the intranasal, the A10 by itself. But we're seeing that people are getting benefit from the A10. But if they have the alpha and can stimulate their brain uh, directly using the infrared directly into the brain, then they're going to have similar improvements and maybe even mitigation of any kind of infection developing from the COVID-19 in the brain because they are measuring now the virus in brain tissue and in, and in the synaptic tissue in the brain. So the more we can do things to mitigate that kind of thing happening, the better off we all are. I mean, I'm quite certain that my own recovery from COVID-19 in the last couple of weeks was definitely enhanced by my ability to use the infrared light directly into my brain and my eyes and my nose. Right, right. That's fascinating. So what, uh, from what I know about it, so increasing uh, oxygenation, ATP production. Um, what Endothelial the, so, flexibility. Okay. Vascular the, flexibility. Yeah, I was just curious about some of the other mechanisms in which uh, in, it's well, exerting those effects. Well, I mean, certainly when you're decreasing the production of certain proteins that go into the formation of amyloid plaque and beta amyloid, you're certainly going to have a positive effect on things like neurodegeneration. And so we've been using uh, a higher frequency device, a 1068 nanometer device to affect that level of change in brain molecular activity. And we also see that we can affect a change, a decrease in phosphorylated tau protein, which is one of the contributing factors to the development of beta amyloid. Um, there's a lot more information like that on the website for people who want to get more into the, the molecular biochemistry. But uh, what we're working on now with COVID is trying to show how increasing the metabolism and increasing the production of certain proteins will definitely help with changing the infection landscape and making it easier for the body to resist the infection, as well as trying to correct and improve after the infection. So it's kind of accelerating recovery while also helping to mitigate against initial infection. Right. Absolutely. That seems like it's going to be super valuable going forward. I mean, as, well, we're as... doing a fundraiser. Yeah. I mean, if I can put a pitch in. We're, yes, please. We're, yeah. We're, we're doing a, a fundraiser at the moment to get about $40,000 so that we can run a couple of trials in the UK and in Northern Ireland to show that we, these mechanisms do in fact respond as we expect them to from stimulation from this 1068 nanometer light. And if we can show that, then we know we can then build devices that people can put over their chest and around their back that they can use to help recover, if not prevent, you know, infection with COVID-19. Right. 
right. That'll be super exciting to see uh, the results, you know, as, as I mean, just beginning to see kind of the, the effects, like who knows, you know, what other effects that long-term effects this is going to have on the brain. Right. right. So, and so we know that we're going to need to have tools that people can use themselves that are not going to cost a lot of money, that are going to be easy to deploy, that are easily scalable, that will help people recover and, and really recover from not only the infection process, but the incredible trauma that everybody is undergoing all over the world by having to go through this. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot of levels at which we need to be thinking about how to use these non-invasive technologies as a way to mitigate the damage that's being caused by what we're all going through. Absolutely. Well said. Well, uh, let's talk. Um, you know, I was curious just, uh, you know, if there's any other resources um, that you would like to bring up, uh, Marvin, or anything sure. else that you want to plug? Um, um, I certainly want to plug people paying much, much closer attention to their respiration process and recognizing that being able to comfortably hold your breath for longer and longer periods of time is a very good indication of your overall physiological health status. And so the more you can use techniques like the Buteco method and other kinds of uh, intermittent hypoxia techniques to really help people gain greater flexibility and control and relax their internal structure, their physical system, and also become more comfortable with without having to hyperventilate. It's like getting in the way of the habitual hyperventilation that people have, many people have developed without even being aware that they've done it. And so working to undo the hyperventilation syndrome that a lot of people have developed will go a long way toward helping folks resist infection and also mitigate the damage that will happen if they do in fact become infected. So I strongly recommend that and um, infrared and red stimulation uh, and neurofeedback is gonna be a very important component for helping people to renormalize their brain electrical activity. And all of these kind of resources need to be made available to people at home that they can do themselves and do effectively. And that's basically what the foundation is going to be focused on now, is helping develop these ways of helping folks get the equipment, learn how to use it, monitor the activity, monitor the treatment that they're doing, and give them very specific feedback so they can optimize the results that they're getting. Absolutely. That sounds like great progress. Uh... And cool to uh, gonna be cool to see the results. Okay. Well. Awesome. Uh, well, Marvin, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. 
Um, great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you guys enjoyed the show, um, go ahead and check us out on YouTube where Roscoe's wetsuit is the YouTube channel. You can see the audio and video version of the podcast there. If you just want to listen to the audio, you can uh, see us on or listen to us rather on Spotify, our iHeartRadio um, or Apple podcasts. So go ahead, check us out. Uh, leave us some good comments. Let us know what you thought. All right, Marvin, thanks again so much. Take care.